This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 68, Shepherds. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven. I'm your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about local overseers for local churches. It takes a special man for the task. Thank God for those special men. I've been reading A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. The more we learn about sheep, the more remarkable our Lord looks. I've been hearing myself and others like me called pastor all my life, and I really wish they would stop. I've been playing Fields of Green. Sheep are a blessing to their owner. If they're not, the shepherd is likely to blame. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Shepherds, overseers, elders, bishops, whatever term you want to use, depending on what version you are reading from, these are descriptive terms for those who maintain oversight in a local congregation. I will defend the nature of local organization later on, uh, maybe in some other context, but here I want to focus on how local churches are organized. And there's really not a lot of information in the New Testament about it, but we do have multiple references to men who are called overseers or elders. I usually use the word elder, but any number of others will do just as fine. There are other Greek terms that are used to describe this process of watching over the sheep, essentially. Shepherd is one of the words that's used to describe these overseers. And when such men are being chosen for the appointed task, it is a, a challenging process for the preacher, for the candidates, for the congregation. It is a, uh, a challenge made no less burdensome by the lack of information that we have about local overseers. What we do have is a list of characteristics in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. These two lists overlap considerably, but they are not the same by any stretch of the imagination. And that's an important point, because I have heard these passages referred to all my life as lists of qualifications for elders. And I push back very much against the idea of qualifications. I don't think that is the way that we are supposed to be looking at these texts. If they were qualifications in the conventional sense of the word, then the lists would be identical. Titus is trying to appoint elders in Crete. Timothy is presumably trying to appoint elders in Ephesus. I would certainly assume, maybe I'm wrong for doing so, but I would assume that the nature of an elder in one place is the same as the nature in the other. In fact, if the nature of elders in local congregations isn't the same, more or less, from place to place, then why in the world we read in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 with reference to elders in modern churches? The assumption is these are both describing an elder, and I think description is a much better term than characteristic, if you will. If you could read through the text in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in Titus chapter 1, we're not going to do that here in this context. I would encourage you to do so on your own. But if you look at those passages and line them up side by side, and I'll try to have a graphic on the video version of this to kind of demonstrate what we're talking about, you see some characteristics that are same or close to the same, and you'll see some that are not necessarily. But what you do see in both passages, and certainly both of them put together, is a composite sketch of what an elder looks like. Someone who is responsible. Someone who is able to manage the church. And we know that because he is experienced in the Word of God. He is experienced in the world. 
people know him and, and understand who he is with regard to his character. He has experience in his own family, being a husband, being a, a, a parent. We see the way that he deports himself in these kind of situations, and that gives us an idea what kind of a person he will be as an elder. More than anything else, of course, he is a good Christian. He's someone who loves the Lord. We can get more specific about that. Those two passages get specific about that. And I'm certainly not trying to suggest that these two lists of characteristics are irrelevant. But what we do find in both of these passages is a call from the Apostle Paul to look at the men of the congregation. And yes, they are men. That's the way they're described very specifically. And assess what kind of character they have. What kind of a person are we looking at? And from that character, a person who is free from the love of money, a person who is not pugna- uh, pugnacious, I love that word, uh, someone who has, is above reproach in the way that he deals with people in and out of the local congregation, someone who shows with his behavior, with his choices, with his self-control, that he is someone who can manage spiritual things and can be counted on for spiritual insight, because that's what we need out of local shepherds. We don't need someone who knows the Bible backward and forward, because we have Bibles. We can do that for ourselves. What we need more than anything else is leaders. We need people who can take God's Word and guide people in the way that they should go, which necessarily implies, of course, that the congregation must be willing to follow after them. But if the congregation accepts them and promotes them and is committed to following after them, these local elders, local shepherds can guide the flock in an appropriate kind of way. And by staying close to the description that's given to us here, we can maximize our opportunity for having good, godly men in leadership positions. Now, that's maximizing the opportunity is all that we can have because people will let us down from time to time. We see that in, in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is talking to men that he loved, men who are serving as elders in the church of Ephesus. Um, from among you, he says, grievous wolves will interrupt. He seems to indicate that people, even in that assembly of elders, were going to let the church down. That's part of being an elder, being aware of not only what's going on on the outside or even what's going on in the congregation, but what's going on with other elders also. The more wise, the more astute, the more God-centered, the more loving, the, the better a character a person is, the more fit he's going to be to serve in this capacity. And may God increase the breed because they are few and far between, I fear. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I probably didn't have to read that directly from the text. I probably didn't have to read it at all, because you know Psalm 23 as well as I do, I suspect. What a marvelous description this is of our Heavenly Father watching over us and guiding us. No doubt David 
drawing on his own experience as a shepherd, thinking of how he cared for his sheep and how that manifested itself on a day-to-day or year-to-year basis. And by inspiration tells us this is how God sees us. And no doubt this is part of the reason why shepherds play such a prominent role in the Bible with regard to God and his people. This is the role that he plays. And this relationship between sheep and shepherd is emphasized to a great extent in Philip Keller's very famous book that you likely have read as often as I have. A shepherd looks at the twenty-third Psalm. What a or the 20, Psalm twenty-three. What a wonderful book that is! How you can develop twelve chapters worth of material essentially from six verses of text. But it's not just six verses of text. Of course, uh, Keller has some experience raising sheep on his own, and from his personal experience, he is aware of the the connection between shepherd and sheep. And he took a great deal of of personal interest in God's relationship with him as he was managing the sheep for a period in his life. If you haven't read the book, it's it's available, I'm sure, everywhere religious books are sold. It's a tremendous read. It won't take very long. I said 12 chapters. They're 12 short chapters. And, and I certainly am not going to try to summarize everything that he has to say on Psalm 23 in a little seven-minute segment. But what I would like to emphasize briefly is this idea that the shepherd is involved in the lives of his sheep. And I don't know exactly how messianic Psalm 23 is supposed to be, but I do know this, that Jesus describes himself as our shepherd, as the good shepherd in John chapter 10 and verse number 10 and following, 11 and following. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Going through verse 15 and and other passages also in this context emphasize this relationship. But that'll do for our purposes here. This connection that Jesus feels in his heart with his people, with those who follow after him, who follow willingly and lovingly and trustingly. That is a, a marvelous kind of thing. And and I don't have a lot of experience with sheep. I don't know that you do either necessarily, but what I have read, what I see in the text is enough to convince me of this compulsion that the sheep have to follow after the shepherd, which is not necessarily a natural thing. It doesn't come easily. Sheep are, by their nature, stubborn. They, they push back. They are self-willed. But when they come to a relationship with the shepherd that no doubt does not happen overnight, when the shepherd builds this relationship with the sheep, and it's a conscious thing, eventually trust is formed. And when that trust is formed, the sheep will give up his will or her will and go wherever the sheep The shepherd is taking them, no matter where it is, even through the valley of the shadow of death. It must be okay because the shepherd says that it's okay. That kind of commitment to our Savior, Jesus Christ, is what should be characterizing us as his sheep. Now, we are still willful. We still have our our stubborn ways about us. And there are going to be times when we do not want to walk in the green pastures. We do not want to lie down in near the, the still waters. We need our souls restored. And he has that rod to discipline us. He has that staff to comfort us, to lift us up out of peril, to restore us to where we ought to be at all times. He is always willing to do that. 
when we are willing to be helped. Now, some sheep are going to rebel. And Keller tells a story of the best sheep that he ever uh, owned, the, the uh, uh, you that that always produced great uh, great lambs and was was had beautiful beautiful wool was very healthy very vibrant and eventually he killed the sheep because she was rebellious because she pushed back because she was sowing seeds of discord she was a source of strife and anxiety among the sheep and losing this one sheep as wonderful as it was was better than losing the flock and sometimes Jesus does that for us as well sometimes we do it in his name first Corinthians chapter 5 talks about that in other passages as well we have an obligation to submit to the shepherd. As much as he loves us, we have to love him in return. And it is a choice that we make on our part. We can wander away. We can destroy ourselves despite the shepherd's best effort. If we're going to be lost, it's not going to be because he didn't care for us enough, though. It's going to be despite that. Our Lord loves us. Our Lord shepherds us. And truly, in the fullest sense of the word, we will not want when we are in his care. We uh, owe a debt to, to Mr. Keller for writing the book to remind us of how special that connection is between shepherd and sheep. It's a good read. Pick it up. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Let me preface my remarks here in this segment by saying I love me some free food. And I am not too proud to take it when it's offered to me. In fact, generally speaking, I would consider it to be rude to not take it. So I'm really doing the other person a favor. That's the way I choose to look at it. And such is the case when, in times past, I have received what's sometimes called a senior pastor discount or something along those lines. I hear that they're giving away free food, and I am all about that. If someone asks me, if I am, in fact, the senior pastor, I will usually say something to the effect of, I'm the preacher, yes, or I'm the only preacher we've got, or words to that effect. But sometimes, if I don't feel like getting into a big, drawn-out discussion, or, or even a short, drawn-out discussion, I'll simply say yes and, and move on. I'll talk to you a little bit in this segment about why that does not bother me to the point of giving up free food. And I will talk a little bit about why it does bother me and why I wish we could come to a better understanding of this Bible concept. And it is a Bible concept. We've touched on this already. There are pastors in the Bible. Ephesians 4 verse 11 is one of the passages where it appears in the New American Standard Bible. Pastor is basically an anglicized version of the Greek word for shepherd. So a pastor is a shepherd. And as a preacher, traditionally, I have done a lot of the things that shepherds do, just by the very nature of the job, as far as feeding the flock and encouraging the flock and and providing some kind of, of guidance and leadership and in terms of daily walks, that sort of thing. That's my job, and I do that. That's also the pastor's job. That's also the, the shepherd's job, and presumably they do that also, which is a good thing they need to do that. But there is a difference between a pastor and a preacher. And so if uh, someone comes to me and asks me at the front door, uh, are you the pastor? I usually say words to the effect of when in situations like this where we do not have local elders, uh, elders here at Lake Woods Drive, I'll say, I'm the preacher. Can I help you? Or we don't have pastors. I'm the preacher. Can I help you? 
is someone that asks in a context where we do have local elders out, they ask, are you the pastor? I'll say, no, but I'll go get you one. And I take them to find one of the elders and let them have the conversation that I probably nine times out of 10 didn't want to have. But I understand why there is this tendency to assume that preachers and pastors are the same thing. And I'm not exactly sure how dangerous it is with regard to short-term conversations. I don't want to have a half-hour conversation with a total stranger in the church foyer about what the difference between a preacher and a pastor is and the the fine points between the two and why we have the one and don't have the other. If I'm going to have a half-hour conversation about somebody in the church foyer, it's going to be about a very different subject. It's going to be about something that's much more central to our faith and our practice than just the terminology that we use. That being said, I do think it's a big deal. And and that's why I, I emphasize in my dealings with local churches, for instance, and in the opportunities that I have to have extended conversations on the topic, that I am not the pastor, not in the the biblical sense. Now, that word has been used over the years to describe someone who is basically in charge, somebody who runs the church, uh, even more than the New Testament concept of elders. In fact, uh, this man basically runs everything. He decides what's going to be done. He decides how the money is spent. And and sometimes there's some governing boards and, and higher authorities and such. But generally speaking, it's a one-man show. And the Bible does not talk about that. The Bible pushes back against that, in fact. There is a, a de facto separation in such situations between what we have come to call the clergy and the laity. And that is not a Bible concept. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible talks about all of us being saints, all of us being Christians. Some have different roles. Some of us have supervisory roles and some do not. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. No one is higher than than anybody else. There are some who govern. There are some who oversee. But ultimately, we are all on the same level. And certainly, I do not want to be perceived as someone who is driving the bus of the local congregation because I'm not. That kind of arrangement looks a lot more like what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3 and following. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not appear, agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, that is to say he's more interested in preaching his own words rather than Jesus' words, he is conceited, verse 4 says, and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain." But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, there's no doubt that all Christians struggle with with ego and pride and selfishness and things of that nature. But if we are to have the body of Christ as it is designed to be, we have to avoid overt efforts to separate one believer from another in terms of importance, in terms of uh, priority. Let's get back to the idea that the Bible presents where godly men are governing the church under the oversight of the chief shepherd. First Peter 5 verses 1 through 4 talk about that. Get back to the idea of all of us being priests in this common temple that we are serving in and get away from this idea of one person being the one who calls all the shots, one person who does all the thinking for everybody else. There's a very real danger here in a, a typical pastor-type system where we just assume the fellow up there uh, behind the, the pulpit 
He's the one who is is doing all the thinking for us. He's the one who's done all the study for us. And if he says it's right, well, we're just we're following after him because after all, it's his church. It's not his church. It's not my church. It's the Lord's church. And it is incumbent upon each individual believer to study God's word for himself or herself and to make application. Sometimes that means submitting to the oversight of others. Sometimes it means following the wisdom of someone who knows more about the Bible than we do. But ultimately, it's always about us taking responsibility for ourselves. That's why I am not a pastor. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you would have stopped listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. All right, true confessions time here. Fields of Green is not a shepherding game. Not in any sense of the word, really. Uh, the Hammonds family does not have shepherding games. There are plenty of shepherding games out there. There are plenty of games with sheep and people who take care of sheep. We don't own any of them. But I needed to come up with a game to fill out the format because I'm obsessive about that kind of thing. And Fields of Green has sheep in it, like a lot of games do. And uh, presumably there are people who take care of the sheep. And so therefore, by implication, there are shepherds. And therefore, for our purposes, it's a shepherding game. So forgive me if that's just unbelievably fake or, or unreal. At any rate, all that being considered, Fields of Green is a, a farming and ranching simulator, basically, where you build up your own little homestead and you put buildings on it and you put farms on it and you raise this product or that product. You have certain people working for you or uh, raising livestock. And there are points affiliated with how good you are doing in this and it's one of those situations where, as is usually the case, bigger is better. And so you want to build as much as you can so you can produce as much as you can so you can make as much money as you can and therefore win the game at the end of it all. And the problem typically is, this, and it's the same with, with other kinds of farming and ranching games like this, and it's true in real life. Just because you have more doesn't mean you're doing better, because more creates problems. It creates challenges for you. This is the feed your people phenomenon that board gamers either embrace or reject. The idea of, at the end of a round, I have to find food to feed my people, or in this case, feed my sheep. And if I don't, then I lose it. Because if you can't feed somebody or something, it's going to die. Well, that's that's real world. That's realistic. I'm not sure exactly how fun it is. And maybe that's why we don't play play Fields of Green any more than we do. But in the per for the purposes of the game, to encourage you to think bigger and not just uh, short term, if you want to expand, if you want to provide an extra sheep field for yourself you need and reap the benefits that come with that, you need to be prepared to pay the cost for that. You need to be able to come up with the food and the water, especially the water in Fields of Green that will allow your sheep to prosper and not die. Prospering is much better than dying, as is typically the case, not just, again, in games, but in life also. And I was thinking about that a little bit with regard to shepherding the sheep in the local church and the opportunities that are ours to, to benefit, to grow, to get rich, as it were, in the context of the local church. And the temptations that are upon us 
as shepherds and as prospective shepherds, and as members too to a certain degree. But the more power you have, the more uh, public you are, the easier it is, as we touched on a little bit in the previous segment, to use godliness as a means of gain. Uh, sometimes financial gain in the most literal of senses, and, and more often than that, uh, publicity or acclaim or, or pats on the head, however you happen to measure popularity or, or prestige in a local church kind of situation. That is a very real appeal because we are human beings and we thrive on that kind of thing. But it is not conducive to our spiritual well-being and is not conducive to the spiritual growth of the local church. So what we need to do is make sure that while we are building ourselves up individually and collectively, we need to make sure that we are providing the proper food and water for them, not just for ourselves. And so this message especially goes out to to local elders and to preachers as well, but really to all of us. The idea of profiting at the expense of the sheep is an old, that's as old as shepherding, basically. People have always done this. They've always been condemned for it. No doubt going all the way back to Abel, the first shepherd, who it seems like understood what it was to prosper in such things. We learn through examples like Ezekiel chapter 34, for instance, the dangers of bad shepherding. Uh, Woe, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock, verse 2 says. You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. He talks about the sickly and the the injured and such that they did not take care of. That's the obligation of the shepherd and really the obligation of any Christian who would be a part of this collective, a part of this body. We have an obligation for other people. And, And if I can broaden it a little bit beyond literal shepherds in the local church to all participants in the body, ask not what the church can do for you, but what you can do for the church. Ask what you can do for the body. This is not simply a relationship that I can milk for all it's worth. That's feeding yourself off the flock. We need to be higher and more noble than that. If we were to succeed in the church, as well as in the game, and in our own personal spiritual development, we have to get away from the idea that whatever is good for me in the short term is what I need to pursue. I need to find a way to use my relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ for their benefit and ultimately for Jesus' benefit as well. That's the goal that we're trying to achieve. That's the way that we win the important game, not just by serving ourselves. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions and watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.halhammonds.com for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.